Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The yoga known in the United States and elsewhere in the West is largely seen as a physical and postural practice. But the history of yoga's arrival in the United States is much different. The first half of yoga's history in the U.S. is of a mental and magical practice, and that history is the topic of today's conversation with Philip D. Slip. Philip D. Slip is a historian of American religion with a background in American studies and literature. His research focuses on Asian, metaphysical, and marginal religions in modern America. Philip is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he's writing a dissertation on the early history of yoga in the United States. He has published several articles in academic journals, one of which we will discuss today, and he has written over two dozen articles for popular audiences in such venues as Tricycle, The Buddhist Review, Yoga Journal, Air and Space Smithsonian, the Indian news site Scroll.in, and Tides, the magazine of the South Asian American Digital Archive. In this conversation, we specifically discuss his article, The Swami Circuit, Mapping the Terrain of Early American Yoga. The article gives an overview of the ways yoga was understood in the late 19th to mid-20th centuries, which is largely the first half of yoga's history in the United States. The piece and our conversation discusses the network of traveling teachers of early American yoga and their student body. As always, you can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, on Facebook at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast, or you can support this show as a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. One last thing. Philip D. Slip is teaching an upcoming four-week online course about the history of modern yoga in the West from yogicstudies.com. That's Y-O-G-I-C-S-T-U-D-I-E-S.com. Registration for Philip's course opens on May 2nd, 2019. So if you want to know more, please go check out Philip's course. A link can be found in your show notes. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on early American yoga with Philip D. Slip. Philip D. Slip. Thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, sir. I know that we've uh, communicated a ton over the last couple of years on Twitter. It's been a delight following your work, and I'm so glad to finally have you on the show. Is it possible for you just to kind of introduce yourself to the audience and kind of say what you do every day and what you focus on as a scholar? Uh, Sure. I'm a doctoral candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, The focus of my research is uh, Asian metaphysical and marginal religions in modern America. I do most of my um, teaching and work as a teaching assistant in the Department of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara. So I'm kind of in between um, both of those worlds. 
the dissertation that I'm working on is a history of early American yoga from the mid 19th to the mid 20th century. Um, and it, it looks at how uh, yoga during this time is very much involved in the American metaphysical tradition and also tied in with matters of race, uh, citizenship, and immigration. Wonderful. Uh, I'm always kind of curious on the background of religious studies scholars and kind of how you got to the path that you did. Is there any like specific spirituality background that you have or academic background that you have that sort of led you to this moment? Um, I think as a, as an academic, um, a real kind of starting point for me was my sophomore year as an undergraduate at the university of Connecticut. Um, I was really unsure if I wanted to go to college and I, uh, I started, um, my undergraduate work with no real certainty that this, it was something that I wanted to do or continue. And so I spent, my sophomore year abroad uh, in France, and I studied at the University of Paris 8 in Saint-Denis, uh, in the suburbs of Paris. And I took a class with a woman named Viola Sachs, who headed a research cluster there on uh, the study of the American imaginary. And I, I always think of her as the kind of professor that everyone should have when they go to college. She was just brilliant um, and also creative and also unusual. And um, I was just fascinated. Um, the very uh, first class I took with her, um, she singled me out in front of the class mm -hmm. and asked me how much of the Bible I knew because the Bible was a key to decoding American literature. And it just kind of took off from there. And I took every class I could with her and then when I came back uh, to the States, um, I just kind of devoured every class I could take in English and American literature and American studies. And that really kind of set the set the the tone for how I viewed um, research and academics of just very kind of free flowing and interdisciplinary. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the, the professors that I had there and um, the kind of support and guidance that they gave me. So I, I went from an undergraduate degree in English and American studies. Um, after some time off, um, I went to the University of Iowa and I ended up uh, jumping from a, an imploding American studies department and I got a an MA um, directly through um, the graduate college uh, in American religious culture. And then I transferred over to UC Santa Barbara uh, where I started pursuing uh, the PhD in religious studies. Um, I've always felt more at home um, in American studies and that kind of interdisciplinary work. Uh, but it became clear to me that I think uh, in the ways that other many other people who study uh, religion found is that religious studies is one of the few disciplines where uh, religious subject matter can get taken seriously. And I found that, you know, in many um, in many areas of American studies and otherwise, uh, religion was not kind of taken seriously as a topic or there weren't people who really focused on it the way that they did uh, in religious studies. So I found myself um, being in a religious studies department mostly because of um, the subject matter I wanted to work with, not necessarily um, the discipline or the method. 
You know, having such uh, formative and influential experiences in Paris, you know, we're talking the day after the fire at Notre Dame, so I'd imagine that yesterday was a pretty interesting day for you as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I um, I was thinking about Notre Dame, you know, all day yesterday, and um, yeah, it was it was very intense. During the time that I spent in Paris, I would roughly estimate that I, you know, I laid eyes on Notre Dame like several hundred times <laughs> during those nine months. Um, it was just, you know, it's a central fixture, and you know, I remember, you know, spending time reading books at Shakespeare and Company and walking out and seeing Notre Dame, getting food and seeing Notre Dame, uh, walking from one place to the other and seeing Notre Dame. Um, it was just always there. It was uh, always a fixture. And it's uh, it's a little hard to wrap my head around um, the fact that it won't, it's not there the way that it seemingly always had been. But You know, I bought, um, I bought some copies of uh, some Hemingway books at Shakespeare and Company in Paris uh, in, I think, like 2008, and I had them stamped and embossed in the inside cover, and no matter how many books I ever trade away to used bookstores, I will never get rid of those copies. They'll stay with me forever, I think. Yeah, yeah, you have to keep it. I mean, it's one of those, um, it's one of those bookstores that really, um, that really has a, not just a character of its own, but its own history and its own, its own kind of life. Um, it's, I think it's in rare company, kind of like city lights and, um, and the old, uh, Bodie tree bookstore in Los Angeles. So before we dive into, um, the Swami circuit, which is something that we're going to talk about in just a little while, how did you come to be intrigued by Asian metaphysical marginal religions in America? Like what was, when did that moment really click for you that that would be your area of emphasis and focus? I think I came at it in two different directions. The candle was kind of burning uh, at both ends. Um, I was involved with a yoga group uh, called 3HO for several years. Um, And by the time I started uh, leaving the group, uh, a lot of things just didn't uh, sit right with me. It was kind of clear that the the backstory of the group, their claims – to how the kind of yoga they taught came to be, uh, it just didn't seem right. It didn't seem um, real or based in fact. I also, as I started my master's program, um, I had a conversation with someone and they said, you should look into this guy, William Walker Atkinson. He wrote all these books on yoga really early under this weird pseudonym, (laughs) Yogi, Yogi Ramacharaka. And, um, while I was in Iowa, I, I did, uh, I did work on both. Um, I really started delving into, uh, this figure, William Walker Atkinson, uh, as I was developing chops as a researcher, as I was learning to negotiate archives and request materials and use online, uh, databases and resources, I started getting more and more into the life of William Walker Atkinson, and I started uh, realizing that so many of the backstories that various people in various groups claim are they're very modern, they're very recent, and they're they're made up, uh, for lack of a more eloquent uh, <laughs> phrase. And so, as I started developing these research chops, uh, looking into the life of William Walker Atkinson, um, I had a moment where I suddenly realized. Um, what if I took those skills and I started applying them 
to um, that group, 3HO, and the kind of yoga that they taught, Kundalini Yoga. And so that was another big project uh, that I embarked on in Iowa. And I tracked down dozens of people who were involved in 3HO uh, during its early years in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, I found the earliest publications that 3HO put out. Uh, I also, you know, poured through thousands of postures and exercises and started comparing them. And I eventually published an article on the origins of Kundalini Yoga. And so kind of both of those things, the historical work on Atkinson and the more recent historical work on Kundalini Yoga, those those both really helped me not only develop my methods as a historian and a researcher, um, but also kind of formed and shaped my interest in that kind of creating of uh, tradition. And do you think yeah. that your do you think that your personal yoga practice was helpful at all as well in solidifying that as an area of interest? I think it, I think in part it did. Um, not how do I put it? Not so much as. Um, this is uh, an otherworldly or uh, ancient uh, practice that needs to be uh, understood in order to be respected. Um, but I think just kind of being in a group and seeing how um, worldviews were formed, how um, ideas of a tradition were not only created but reinforced by its members, um, I think that was one of the things that kind of stuck with me that I found – uh, really fascinating and interesting. Um, cool. That well, led to do the work that I did. Yeah. I love the article that um, I read leading up to our conversation today that you put out called The Swami Circuit in the Journal of Yoga Studies. And this article is so interesting because it maps the terrain of early American yoga. And it's the title of a piece that you have out. And so, what does like this, the Swami Circuit, um, and so what does a journal like the Journal of Yoga Studies like primarily publish? Is this like a, um, actually, I think I'm going to not ask this question. Sorry, Philip. Let's see. Oh, that's okay. I didn't like where that was going. Um, let's see. So you have an article out in the Journal of Yoga Studies called The Swami Circuit, which maps the terrain of early American yoga. Um, so when people close their eyes and picture yoga, what do you think that most people think of today? I think when people imagine yoga today, they have very similar and very clear ideas of what yoga is. And I think it's pretty safe to make the claim that despite the differences that different styles of yoga uh, make about themselves, yoga is very much kind of standardized, uh, in some ways homogenized. Um, the little differences aren't really that different. When you say yoga, people imagine a class of about an hour in which people go through a sequence of postures. Maybe they do some kind of relaxation or visualization at the end, um, but it's pretty standardized. Yoga is a physical practice, usually done on a mat, perhaps in a studio or in someone's own home, but it's using the body to 
uh, improve the body and you know, perhaps improve the mind or someone's general well-being. Um, and this is very different than the yoga we find uh, a century ago. Um, there are maybe some general similarities, but that kind of physical practice and that kind of understanding and use of the body is just not there to be found uh, when we go back to the 1920s and the 1930s. Yeah, and you trace in in your article, you trace this history in the early in the late 19th and early 20th century. You discuss a major moment of importance as the 1893 Parliament of World Religions, and then there's a quote in the article where you say it looks quote markedly different than its contemporary form, referring to yoga. So, how does yoga practice look in the early 20th century um, that might be slightly different from what we think of today? I think the main difference, and I, I'm embarrassed uh, to use this pun, is that <laughs> ideas of yoga during this time are very flexible. Oh, good. There is, there is no kind of standard single understanding of what yoga is. And during this time, we see a variety of people teaching and practicing a variety of different things, all under the name yoga. And there's no real dispute or argument about it. People teach yogi philosophy, yoga breathing, uh, yoga psychology. Um, there are yoga diets. And none of those things are contested as being yoga. It's very much uh, up for grabs. So we have a variety of different practices that are being presented to the public um, as yoga with very little disagreement. So it's not like the postural form like you would see today where it's up dog into down dog and then there's the transitions that go throughout a series of flows and classes like you would think of today. It's not like that, right? No, it's not. I think uh, a really valuable reference point is Mark Singleton's 2010 book, Yoga Body. He talks about the origins of modern postural practice. His main argument is that what is recognized as yoga today, that flowing sequence of postures, that physical postural practice, that is not ancient and traditional as much as it is modern and arising from a particular historical moment. Singleton's going to argue that in the late 19th, early 20th century, you have these various practices and these uh, various concerns that come together uh, and through a few key individuals, gives rise to modern postural practice. Uh, what we understand as yoga today, it does have some older postures, but it's also incorporating Western bodybuilding, Swedish gymnastics, uh, even military drills, um, and that it is a more recent invention. I am, in some ways, picking up the story around the same time in the United States, and I think my work complements uh, Mark's work in that if postural practice is coming together uh, in the early 20th century in India, then it would make sense that in the United States, we are not going to see postural practice during that time. There's going to be a period of time, a necessary period of time when it comes over. Um, and that's, in fact, what we see. Um, I think one of the big figures in this modern revival of Hatha Yoga is Swami Kulvalyananda. And we start to see some of his writings and some of his publications show up in the United States in the 1920s. 
But postural practice as we know it doesn't really take off in the United States until right around the beginnings of World War II, late 1930s, early 1940s. Uh, as I mentioned in the article, we start to see physical cultural physical culture magazines announce postural practice as a new import, as something that has just arrived. And that really starts to mark the transition. You know, through the 40s and 50s and early 60s, the body and postural practice really starts to become ascendant in American yoga. Is there anything pre-World War II that a modern yoga practitioner in 2019 would recognize at all? Yes and no. I think many of the practices that were done as yoga uh, wouldn't be recognizable to someone walking out of a yoga studio in 2019. Um, For the most part in the 1920s and 30s, there's very little... Uh, physical movement or exercise. There's a lot of breathing and visualization, affirmations, philosophy, different things like that. Um, So much of it would be unrecognizable. I think one of the most uh, striking things that I found in my research is that demographically, it has been incredibly consistent over the past century. Uh, One of the things that I did for the article was I tried to figure out what the demographics of yoga were during this time in the 1920s and the 1930s. So what I did is um, I was able to find mailing lists uh, in an archive, and I was also able to find several dozen photographs of lectures and classes done by yoga teachers during this time. And then I did the very tedious task of counting names from mailing lists and counting heads from photographs. And I was able to come up with a grand total of about 2,400 attendees at different events. And I was able to divide them into how many men and how many women were at these events. And then with other sources and information, I was able to kind of recreate what the demographics would be during that time. And what I found shocking is that it's basically the same composition as the large scale uh, surveys and questionnaires that yoga journal and yoga Alliance have been doing every other year. Uh, It's almost identical. So about three quarters of yoga classes in the 1920s and thirties were women. And the same is true today. Um, And classes were and are now largely white, largely educated, largely middle-class. Wow. So there is that kind of shocking continuity. Wow. That's really interesting whenever you think about, you know, the differences between society now and then and the difference between modern yoga and pre-World War II yoga and how the dem- and how the demographics are still the same. That's really quite stunning. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Um yes and no. I think when when I really started to dig into um the sources from the 1920s and 30s, you know, what reporters were saying, uh, looking at photographs, looking at mailing lists, looking at correspondences. Um, It wasn't a shock to have actual statistics to show that early American yoga was mostly female. But to see the numbers and how closely they mapped onto numbers from 2016 and 2018, that was a bit shocking to see how... um, how comparable they were. 
So in this article, you dive into something called the Swami circuit. And I absolutely love this because it kind of reminded me of like a traveling punk rock band or like a traveling uh-huh. preacher or a carnival. Um, uh-huh. So what exactly is this Swami circuit? Can you describe it for the audience? Yeah, in, in general terms, um, what I mean by the Swami circuit, um, and I, I found out because uh, I was really deeply in this uh, time period of the, the interwar decades, I found out that in the late 1960s, I believe it was either Time or Life magazine, they actually used the same phrase to describe hippies moving from mm-hmm. one guru to the next. Um, in the sense that I use it, um, it describes how yoga teachers during the interwar decades overwhelmingly uh, engaged with American audiences and made a living by traveling from city to city. And they had a very standard pattern. They would come to a city and they would offer a series of free public lectures uh, designed to bring in as large of a crowd or audience as possible. And then those free public lectures would then lead to a series of smaller private classes for fee. Uh, and usually those classes would be on um, over a weekend or on a series of weekday evenings. And then on occasion, uh, those private classes would feed into dyadic relationships, one-on-one um, encounters between a teacher and a student or a client. And those could take the form of fortune-telling, healing, uh, counseling, life coaching, um, all sorts of different things. So there was this pattern um, that these teachers engaged in, and um, it is very similar from one to the other. And what I found uh, over time doing research is that that was no coincidence, that these teachers were not only very well aware of each other and the kind of business and marketing that each other was engaged in, uh, but there's also a lot of direct correspondence between teachers uh, to the level of exchanging mailing lists and giving advice on what to do in what city and where to teach and who to contact. Something just jumped out at me. You mentioned the time period between the two world wars as being sort of like, you know, a special time, a high watermark, if you will. What was it about that period that was special between those wars? I think the most obvious, uh, the most obvious thing that marks that time is denaturalization. So the American government in 1923, uh, in a famous uh, case before the Supreme Court, they denied citizenship to a Punjabi Sikh man named Bhagat Singh Tind. Not only did they deny Tind citizenship, but they ruled that Asians were, quote, ineligible for citizenship. And so that meant if you were of Asian descent, under the law, you could not own uh, property, you could not own a business, you did not have the rights of a citizen. Um, And the government went even further and it took away the citizenship of several dozen South Asian Americans who had previously become naturalized citizens. So in order to become naturalized, you had to renounce your previous citizenship and you know, swear your loyalty to the American government. And then when the American government takes away that American citizenship, you're left without any citizenship whatsoever. Uh, no protections as a citizen, and if you leave the country, uh, good luck getting in anywhere, because you have no uh, citizenship. So that 
is a huge factor in pushing dozens of South Asian Americans into the profession of traveling metaphysical lecturer and uh, yoga teacher. Uh, and we see this with um, you know, archival evidence. You know, there are many people who, in the wake of denaturalization, they take up this career, sometimes for a few months and sometimes for several years. Um, it's not in the article, um, but I created a, a little kind of timeline chart of the number of classes and lectures that are being offered. And you see right in the wake of denaturalization, you know, a few years after, there's just this tremendous spike and this kind of circuit develops of all of these traveling teachers. And it makes sense that, you know, the people who would become citizens, the people who would be affected most by denaturalization, they are the people who are most able to take up the mantle of this kind of career, you know, highly educated, um, proficient in English. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the, um, some of the key words that you use throughout the article that really jumped out at me, like magical, supernatural, psychic abilities. And you write specifically quote yoga in the United States during the late 19th to mid 20th century was primarily seen not as physical and postural, like we talked about before, but as mental and magical. What do you mean by magical in this uh, scenario? I think in a, in a very basic way, people believed that um, yogis uh, and swamis had the ability to influence our shared physical reality uh, through supernatural powers. Uh, in some cases, people assumed that Yogis had um, kind of supernatural physical health, uh, but they also believed that they had the power to heal, uh, to locate lost items, um, to find people's affinities or soulmates, um, to uh, make changes in people's destiny uh, or fortune, uh, had the ability to see the future, um, read horoscopes, different things like that. Um, and I think that's that's where um, seeing beyond key figures like Swami Vivekananda and Yogananda is important. Um, the American public was, they thought that they were very familiar with India and with yogis and swamis. Um, there is so much material uh, within the realm of popular culture um, for decades before uh, Vivekananda the American public was used to um, pulp novels, vaudeville shows, magical performances, um, newspaper stories, all sorts of accounts that gave them an idea, however erroneous, that India was a land of magic and that there were wonder workers who had special abilities. So we find in a lot of memoirs of early South Asian, America, South Asian uh, immigrants to America, uh, it's a common motif that they would be approached by you know, ordinary Americans who would just assume that because they were from India or because they wore a turban, that they were able to contact spirits of the dead or that they had magical powers and abilities. So it sounds like there's a lot of stereotyping and some racism and prejudice going on as well. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to be nuanced about it. And one of the questions that I get a lot from people who read the article or uh, read uh, other work that I've done is just the assumption that these people 
who were portraying themselves as yogis and swamis during this time, that they were just fakers, that they were con artists. And I don't think that that is the entire truth. I think the majority of them were people uh, in a very um, difficult moment in history who were trying to make a living and support themselves uh, in the best way that uh, they were able to. I think those that political environment uh, was a really crucial element uh, for the proliferation of yoga during the 1920s and 30s. Um, the other thing, the other things that I think make that period of time uh, so special is that uh, immigration was severely limited. So there were very few actual people from India in the United States. So there was little reality to get in the way of Americans' perceptions of what India was or what Indians were like. Um, I think it's a pretty fair guess that in some major cities like Chicago, uh, you had more people pretending to be from India than you had actual people from India. <laughs> um, and when you, you look at the classified ads of major newspapers and you go through the sections of, you know, fortune tellers and mediums, um, there's just, there's so many people who are claiming to be yogis or swamis or to be holders of magic from India. I think another big change is um, the Second World War. Um, in the online magazine Tides, uh, put out by the South Asian American Digital Archive, there's a great article by someone uh, named Ishnan Ashutosh who talks about how Americans viewed India during and after the Second World War. And I think that's also a big shift. Um, starting in the Second World War, Americans have more direct exposure to India. Um, Americans see themselves on the world stage in a different way. And so a lot of those older imagined stereotypes of India don't really hold up. I also think that you know there were enough of these yogis and swamis that after enough time, they kind of became a cliche or they, they became such a well-worn fixture uh, in the landscape that they no longer had the allure or the mystery or the charm that they once did. And we also see that in popular culture, that the, the image of the yogi or the swami goes from being dangerous and uh, mysterious to by the 40s and 50s uh, becomes like a, a gag or becomes just a kind of another standard side character. Yeah, well, and you've got so many uh, cool images and flyers and newspaper clippings in this in this article. Can you tell me a little bit about it, like as a historian? Tell me about your efforts to uncover the booklets and ephemera and periodicals related to these time periods that you included. Like, what did you have to do to to dig all these materials up? Um, I had to do a lot. I had to do quite a lot. <laughs> uh, if if I was backed into a corner um, and I had to give a simple phrase for the kind of scholarship and research I do, I would describe myself as someone who does uh, historical ethnography. Um, you know, if I was uh, an ethnographer who is working on a contemporary subject, um, I would be able to go to events, talk to people, um, observe, um, do interviews, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, um, the subject that I'm working with is, you know, 70 to 100 uh, plus years old. So I have to do that kind of work um, through historical materials. Um, you know, unlike the claims of many of the people that I study, 
I can't summon up the spirits of the dead and talk to them and ask them questions. So I'm trying to reconstruct the networks and the worldviews of these people uh, and what they created and what they did and what they believed uh, through historical sources and materials. Did you and have any... really is... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead. Did you find any, like like windfalls or like just absolute like deluges of um, source material in like a particular library or like a particular research day? Did you have any like really like good luck whenever you were in the research process? Yeah. Yes. And no, I, I think one of the things that became clear to me was that there was no single archive that would have everything that I needed. Um, I'm not so much interested in, doing a biography of a specific figure, but more kind of this kind of world and this phenomenon as a whole. Um, there is one archive at Stanford, um, which is materials of a man named Deva Ram Sakul. Um, but even that is, is not really enough. Um, I, I know, you know, from my own digging that there are some archives that kind of birthed uh, dissertations or books. Uh, I'm thinking of, in particular, um, the International New Thought Alliance Archive in Arizona. They have materials of this uh, New Thought uh, figure, Annie Ricks Millets. And when I went to the archive and I saw what they had, it suddenly dawned on me, this is why I was able to read a dissertation on Annie Ricks Millets. You know, one place kept the material, and then someone could go to that, and then they had what they needed. Uh, to write a dissertation. There is no kind of single archive. Um, even when there are um, archives, um, they're not enough. What I've tried to do is gather material from various places and then sort it and organize it so that I can make it uh, usable. You mentioned, um, um, you, yeah, you mentioned David Ramsakul. I'm looking at that picture in your article of him presenting in three different like looks. One is a Hindu yogi, one is a Vedanta-style Swami, and one is a Western occultist. Is that pretty common as well? I think it was. I think, um, you know, when we talk about sources for understanding this period of time, I think many of these teachers are themselves um, researchers and experts on this world. You know, they're professionals. They're traveling around. They are dependent on their audiences for making a living. So they are going to be very savvy and very flexible with how they present themselves and what they offer to the public. Um, you know, when you are going to a different city every few weeks or every month, you're going to you're going to get a very good handle on uh, what your audiences expect, what they want and uh, what they respond to. And so I think David Ramsakul is not alone for, not alone in um, adjusting his image uh, to his audience and trying out different looks and trying out um, different descriptions and different practices and different techniques. I've spoken to a few uh, people recently. Um, Nicole Kirk springs to mind, Duncan Ryukin Williams springs to mind. And we've talked about the like the fear and the paranoia felt by Protestant America during many decades of American society about losing power and influence. 
And indeed, your article mentions how yoga and Hinduism were seen as a foreign invading menace that threatened Protestant America. So in a lot of ways, we're kind of still dealing with this in the U.S., which is sad. But can you tell me a little bit about some of the backlash faced by yogis and swamis that you uncovered during your research? Yeah, I think one of the constants during this time is that um, there are always polemics that are made against uh, yogis and swamis. These could take uh, different forms. Um, you know, many uh, many ministers, uh, many church organizations uh, went to great lengths to attack them in print. Uh, there were also numerous public scandals uh, that revolved around different yogis and swamis. I think it's also important to acknowledge that um, there was also um, sarcasm and parody and mocking that was done of yogis and swamis in various realms of popular culture. When you add up all of the students of these various yogis and swamis, it's not a large number. You know, I would estimate that you have you know tens of thousands of students throughout the country. It's not very large at all. Um, so I don't think it was any kind of genuine threat um, to Christian or Protestant America. I think it made a convenient target. I think nothing kind of solidifies um, one's identity than uh, imagining an outside threat. And I think this is one of um, the functions that uh, yoga had during this time for Protestant America. It was an easy target uh, that could be lampooned, that could be attacked. Um, and that could be used to reinforce uh, what was held in common um, by various parts of Protestant America. So yoga was uh, seen as something that was um, not only frivolous and faddish, um, but something that was self-centered. Uh, many of the critiques on yoga said that um, the Americans who engaged in it, that they were doing it through uh, their vanity or through wish fulfillment, since many of these yoga teachers were offering secrets to youth and longevity um, or you know, obtaining your desires. Um, many of the critiques uh, against yoga during this time liked to, to depict yoga as something that would make people leave their families or drive people crazy. Um, one of the most uh, famous uh, yoga scandals, uh, which I wrote about for Tides, was on the governor of Oklahoma, who was impeached in no small part uh, because of his involvement with the occult and in yoga uh, in particular. Um, but yoga made a very convenient target. And I think it worked both ways, where um, xenophobic attacks on immigration from India um, could be supported by tying immigration with yoga and how people perceived uh, the religions of India. Um, and at the same time, attacks on yoga teachers uh, were supported by uh, xenophobic attacks on immigration in general. So the probably the most famous polemic of this time, Mabel Daggett's The Heathen Invasion of America, it's ostensibly an attack on yogis and swamis, but it's done through um, very kind of xenophobic rhetoric where Mabel Dackett talks about, you know, this invasion and this swarm and she paints these kind of vivid pictures of yogis and swamis um, on American soil and kind of desecrating and repurposing 
famous spots in America and famous landscapes. So I think those two things are very much uh, linked together. Gotcha. You know, and I was also thinking about gender as I was reading the article, because you write about these like women only classes that swamis and yogis gave on things like beauty and love and relationships. And then you also talked earlier about the demographics, about how it was so heavily um, women, women heavy classes and demographics. Was there any like abuse going on? Um, Like, was there any, like any, like you mentioned scandals. Is there any scandals as far as like sex goes or anything like that that you found? Yeah. So the fact that these lectures and classes were made up predominantly of women, that was the easiest way for um, yogis and swamis to be attacked. And polemics against yoga often served more than one purpose. So many of the critiques on yoga relied on the fact that these teachers had female students. And it would go both ways. They would say that these yogis and swamis are ridiculous and our proof is that their followers are, you know, women. And the attack the other way would say, of course, these yogis and swamis are con men and they're without morals and they're reprehensible because they're taking advantage of simple minded women who, you know, are following them uh, based on, you know, their own vanity or their own uh, misunderstandings. The other kind of level of polemics and scandals were um, there were several uh, cases where um, women either left their husbands or left their families uh, to follow yoga teachers or swamis. Uh, There were also a few cases of disputed wills where women left uh, large sums of money to organizations or yoga teachers. Um, That was similarly attacked as um, the exploitation of women by these yoga teachers. Um, I think when we dig into um, archival evidence, when we look at, you know, arrest reports and court records and lawsuits and other things, um, there are plenty of scandals um, back at this time in the 1920s and 1930s and earlier. I don't think it's a shocking revelation that when there is, you know, imbalances of power um, that abuse will happen um, yeah definitely there there is evidence of um, numerous yoga teachers having uh, dalliances with female students um, including some of the most kind of prominent names um, in that history I mean Yogananda kind of immediately comes to mind I was able to see private letters um, that were sent between affiliates of Yogananda and um, you know there's you know, there's a lot of evidence that he was involved with uh, many of his female students, like many other of these teachers were. A lot of these teachers um, ended up marrying um, American women um, and having wives um, in the United States, like uh, Yogi Wasson, uh, Bhagwan Singhiani. Others seem to have um, almost like crypto wives, that they would have secretaries who would travel with them. And, you know, for various reasons, they were um, to all extents and purposes, their spouses, but they were not uh, officially married. Um, so there's kind of a spectrum uh, that's that's there. Interesting. Okay, so I keep thinking back to all these things that are springing to mind from this article. 
um, like you write about a ton of like fortune telling and psychic reading and astrological forecasting and like divination with disembodied spirits and the like. So I've read a decent amount about Hindu practice um, and things like this over the years, but like I've never had any of these topics really jump out at me in my reading. Is there any basis whatsoever in Hinduism for any of these things that people were going to these yogis to have done? Or is this all just like them pulling something over on American people who know nothing about Hinduism so that they can make a living in a country and a place where they're not entirely welcomed? Um, it, it, it's a bit of a difficult question because there is such a broad range and diversity uh, within Hinduism and within yoga in particular, going back into antiqu- antiquity, that if you want to find parallels, uh, it's not difficult to find parallels. This is something that Jim Mallinson um, from SOAS talked about uh, in a few uh, online pieces that if you are looking at different kind of new innovative uh, yoga practices that are going on now, of course you can find older parallels. Um, you know, people who are trying to pair um, marijuana and yoga or naked yoga or goat yoga. Right. There, there's enough there that you can find a parallel. I think the most important question is, just because there's an analog, does that mean that there is a connection? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that there is an actual link? And I think when we look at the fortune telling and the psychic readings and all of that stuff from the 1920s and 30s, um, maybe we can find analogs with earlier practices within Hinduism or yoga. But most importantly, there are not direct links. And it's kind of clear that what these teachers are doing is, for the most part, they are paying attention to what's going on around them and they are picking things up from the American metaphysical tradition and then repurposing it and presenting it to their American audiences. Um, gotcha. Has there been any, have there been any long-term consequences regarding the American understanding of Hinduism as much as there is an understanding? Has there been like any long-term consequences of our society understanding or misunderstanding Hindu religious practices because of these like lingering possible stereotypical views that we have from a century ago? I think less and less, but I think there are still some echoes that are there. Um, the idea, the idea that India is a spiritual place and people from India have a unique connection to the supernatural. I think we still see that kind of Orientalist view um, with Americans in general, um, specifically in the yoga world. You know, why do people, why do so many yoga teachers go to India for teacher training programs? Um, You know, I think part of that is there's still this kind of vague sense that there's something more spiritual about um, doing your practice on Indian soil. Uh, The idea of yogis and swamis as turbaned, uh, fortune tellers, we still have little traces of it that are still around. Uh, you can kind of, th- that idea, that motif kind of pops up every now and then. I think, ironically, the most uh, famous example of that is on ESPN. Uh, Chris Berman uh, would do a feature where he'd make uh, 
sports predictions and he would put on a turban and it was called Swami says. Oh my gosh. I didn't even know about this. And I used to watch that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like a, an occasional weekly thing. I think that's like one of the, like the last echoes of that kind of, that kind of thing directly. I personally think that the most, um, lasting legacy of those images of yogis and swamis and that, uh, all those polemics against them, um, I see it as um, most active in the anti-cult movement of the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, when we look at the brainwashing controversies that were going on during that time, uh, the idea that um, people who were members of so-called cults uh, had their will taken away from them, that they were brainwashed, that they were programmed, the end of those kind of polemics against yogis and swamis, we still see them active in the mid and late 50s, in some cases the early 60s. I think it's very reasonable to assume, because they're so close within living memory, that a lot of those polemics against yoga um, were revived or were still present uh, when we have you know, the anti-cult movement of the late 60s and early 70s take shape. Something that I'm, I'm now curious about is I wonder if you could track the earnings of yoga teachers in the United States and compare the annual income of people who did their training in India versus people who did their training in the U.S. and see if they're able to turn that into some kind of additional uh, profit for themselves based on where they did their training, you know? I don't know. I mean... That might be tough, but I think it's definitely something that's there. I mean, when you go through Instagram and when you uh, look at the bios of yoga teachers, um, that's definitely something that's featured and highlighted. I, you know, I studied with so and so in India. I did a teacher program, teacher training program in Rishikesh. Um, that's still that's that's very much a thing. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Philip, I have absolutely love talking to you. I've liked reading your work too. I'm really grateful that we were able to get in touch and talk about this, the Swami circuit and, uh, to talk about some of your other work. This is some fascinating history, sir. Um, what are you, uh, what are some of your short-term goals as far as uh, your research goes? Um, short-term goals are, I don't know how short it is, uh, finish up the dissertation. Um, I have a few other, um, smaller projects that I'm, um, concurrently finishing up and yeah some of those are uh, a chapter on the connections between yoga and uh, christianity in america i'm also working on uh, another chapter about the connections between asian religions and ufology in the early 20th century um, why so many people who are interested in ufos are also interested in buddhism and hinduism um, yeah, among other projects. Awesome. Where can people find you if they uh, want to kind of follow along with what you're doing? Um, I have a website, which is just my name, uh, philipdslip.com, and I make it a point to put on that website uh, whatever I've published and whatever has come out. So um, all you need to do is go there and you can kind of track down uh, the various things that I've published. Wonderful. Well, I will link to that in the show notes for anybody listening. You can find links to Philip's work in the show notes. So go find it. Philip DeSlip, this has been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me.
Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.